Excellent. Oh, good to hear. Um, look, my uh, short and delightful task this afternoon uh, is to introduce Dr. Dennis Glover, uh, a professional author, a professional speechwriter, a man who has put words in the mouths of the powerful as a former policy advisor, a speechwriter on the staff of such leading Labor types as Kim Beasley, Simon Crean, Mark Latham, Julia Gillard and Wayne Swan, including the famous, or if you work for the Australian Notorious, Bruce Springsteen speech. So thanks for that one. Um, so just a little bit about Dennis. He writes for several Australian media outlets, including ones that still print real words on real paper. His head can be found talking wisely on radio and television across the land, and his essay, Doveton, can be found in last year's copy of the Best Australian Essays. Um, I discovered early this morning that Dennis's doctoral thesis at Cambridge Uni was on the classical origins of the political thought of the leveller movement in the English Revolution, which I've asked him to email me, and I find more intriguing than it is perhaps entirely normal. Um, uh, Dennis is a founding fellow uh, and deeply involved in Per Capita, a think tank whose excellence I frequently envied while directing one of its rivals, the Centre for Policy Development. Oh, hi, by the way. My, my name's Miriam Lyons. I'm not sure if I mentioned that before. Um, uh, so, Dennis's new book is An Economy is Not a Society, Winners and Losers in the New Australia. And it looks at the effect on Australia of the policies of creative destruction over the last 30 years. Dennis is going to jump up, he's going to talk for about 35 minutes and then we are going to have a lovely long time for Q&A. It's going to be great. Um, please put your hands together in a repeated fashion, enthusiastically, loudly for Dennis. Thank you so much, Miriam. Um, think about it for a moment. What's the most dangerous and unsettling idea of them all? Dangerous and unsettling because it upsets our basic certainties and our hopes, especially the hope that things will always get better. Perhaps it's this, the idea that the past was a better place than the present and that the present is probably better than the future. It's unsettling because it sounds so plausible. The idea that we are captive to a process of change that is as unstoppable as it is unpleasant. When I hear myself saying this, I think I must be coming conservative. After all, it's conservatives who are against change for its own sake, or so we're led to believe. But the strange thing is, I don't feel conservative at all. Sometimes slightly nostalgic. If I show traits of being conservative, it's, a parad it's paradoxically because, in relation to the world, I'm becoming more radical. It's our country and our world that are really changing. We are the fixed point, not our economy, our political system, our society, or our little world. Let's start this off personally. Recently, someone I know, who was about 30, said to me that her generation of friends, middle class, recent university graduates, were living in constant, a constant stage of apprehension about the future. Perhaps their story is similar to yours. They were doing pretty dead-end jobs, volunteering for worthy organisations, applying for internship after internship, hoping desperately that someone would give them unpaid work so they could get a foot in the door of their professions. But waking every morning in a state of cold fear about where they are going to end up after all those years of study and accumulation of debt which I found both extraordinary and extraordinarily sad. You see, my university days were the most enjoyable days of my life. Admittedly, they lasted a decade. <laughs> and I'll bet that those of you over 45 here today will, will agree with me. I was free. My university education was free. I had scholarships, so they even paid me. I got clean free without debt. And I can't remember spending a single minute before graduation wondering what I would do with my life afterwards. I even chucked in my law degree to study philosophy because I hated the law and was insanely confident I could get by and do whatever I wanted to do. You know, I think if a son or daughter did that now, their parents might disinherit them. The future back then was open. 
it is absolutely indisputable, I think, that university life was better back then, immeasurably better. Was it just because, when I was a student, I was young, carefree, debt-free, single, free of mortgage repayments and superannuation balances and children to endlessly worry about? Or is my experience part of a universal experience? Was the past actually better? Was the past actually better? So let me try and answer a question. Was Australia a better place all round 30 to 40 years ago than it is now? And if it is, why? I want to begin to answer that question with a journey. In December 2013, I attended a children's birthday party for my older sister's granddaughter. It was at Myuna Farm, a community farm next to the neighbourhood in which I grew up in Doveton, a suburb created by the Victorian Housing Commission to house the people employed in the big factories opening up in Dandenong next door. Pictures of it then and now are on the screen. We should think of Doveton the way we think of those communities that philanthropists like the Cadbury family and William Owen and, and others set up for the working class in 19th century England, semi-utopian in its moral ambition. We don't think of the Housing Commission that way, but we should. With time to spare, I diverted through my old street, just for old time's sake, and what I saw upset me. To put it directly as I can, it looked like poverty to me. Now, I'd been through the area and even the street regularly, off and on since I'd left it to go to university when I was 18. My family still lives close by. But this time, it felt different. My father had recently passed away and it brought back a lot of memories for me. I guess it was this emotional state that led me, as soon as I got home, to write an essay about my old neighbourhood that was originally published in The Age and then Best Australian Essays, culminating in an approach from Black Ink to turn it into a book. At the heart of that book lies a memory. You see, I'm old enough to remember when Doveton and other working-class places like it were prosperous, when people who worked in factories weren't poor, when they weren't the working poor but the working class. There's a difference. People tend not to know this. They assume that, like Mount Druitt in Western Sydney, places like Doveton were always poor, always had high unemployment, were always full of people on welfare, but it's not true. And this fact is essential to understand just what has gone wrong. It's also essential to understand what is wrong about my old and beloved Labor Party. As I said, Dufton was built to house the workers in the three big factories built along the Princess Highway from the mid-1950s onwards. General Motors Holden, Heinz and International Harvester, who then built trucks. At their height in the 60s, 70s and early 80s, these three factories alone had 7,500 jobs. Doveton had 2,500 houses. That's three jobs for every home. And I know this because my father, my mother and my oldest sister worked in those factories and in the university holidays, I did too. Unemployment back then hovered around 1% or 2% in Doveton. The people of Dubton were working class, but they were far from poor. Their unionised jo jobs gave them good wages and conditions. Their streets were pleasant. Their bright little shops were full of customers. Their children went to university, even before going to university became the norm. Almost all of my close friends from my working class childhood went to university and TAFE and became professionals. Their local Labor Party branches, with their genuine members who paid their own membership dues and believed in Labor's historical mission, selected the best locals for Parliament. But today, after 30 years of glorious economic reform, the factories are all but gone. You can see some of them empty, hollowing, echoing places up here on the screen. Those 7,500 jobs have been turned into 500. Three jobs to every home is now one job to every five homes. Doveton's unemployment rate is 21%. At the height of Paul Keating's recession we had to have, it was only 19%. Its Labor Party is bereft of ideas, its unions are broken, 
And as a result, those with jobs are often trapped on the minimum wage. Its streets are smashed up, as you can see. Its shopping strips are full of $2 shops and charity shops, as you can see. Its schools are mostly closed, smashed up, as you can see. And the local principal told me few of its children are likely to get to university now. In fact, that's not quite true. What he really told me is that he doubted that a single child from his school would get to university, a single child. But I didn't have the heart to write it in my book. It just seemed too bleak, too heartbreaking, almost disloyal. So it's no surprise that Doveton's magistrate's court is full of people whose problems with drugs and alcohol and depression are related back to their inability to make it safely from school to work, from childhood to adulthood. Doveton, along with similar places like Norlane, where the unemployment rate is 20.7%, Broadmeadows Campbellfield, 25.7%, Elizabeth in South Australia, 32.6%, 32.6%, think about that. These places are proof positive that the promise of economic reform was only meant for some. These suburbs were murdered and our economic reformers with their philosophy of creative destruction are the guilty party. When you think about how much has changed in those places, and more to the point, when you see with your own eyes how much has changed, the great towering factories with their vast car parks and traffic jams at clock off at clock off time, gone. The unions with their promise of good wages and control over working hours, gone. The social capital, you know, I hate that term, the canteens and the social clubs and the factory Christmas parties and the homegrown leaders, gone. And in some respects, the working class itself, gone. Replaced by the new creation called the non-working class. When you see those things, you understand that what has happened is something more substantial than just economic reform. Here's a change to a way of life as thorough and as crushing as that described by the historian E.P. Thompson in his great book, The Making of the English Working Class, which described what had happened to the English working classes at the start of the Industrial Revolution. So here's a dangerous observation. What happened in Australia in the 30 years between the mid-1980s and today is not economic reform. That's far too tame a term one shorn of its vital meaning. It's an economic revolution that the little people lost and which in many ways we all lost. And we are living in the dark shadows of that revolution still, that failed revolution. The old economic, social, political world has been swept away and we have to confront that fact and change the way we think accordingly. The economic reformers who began all this change in the 80s and 90s led us to believe, in fact, promised would probably not be too strong a word, that greater productivity by leading to higher economic growth would make this result for places like Doveton unlikely, that all boats would float as the tide rose and everyone could aspire to something better. They're still saying it. Growth first, distribution second. Even they couldn't have dreamed that their high tide of economic growth would last for so long. But here it is, the year 2015. Australia rich, Doveton and other places like it poor for 30 years, a generation and a half. Why? Why has this happened? Well, a wise person might consider the possibility that the two results are linked and that the way we have pursued economic growth has present, prevented many people in places like Doveton from sharing the rewards. In fact, this is the only serious explanation. The last 30 years have seen more than just a quantitative change in our economy. They have witnessed the creation of a new economy without a heart or a conscience. It comes down, I think, to this. We used to create wealth by including places like Doveton. Now we create wealth by excluding them. In the first 30 years after the Second World War, we built an economy that included all Australians in the creation and enjoyment of our prosperity. And in the second 30 years, we did the opposite. That's why the Dovetons of Australia are poor. Not because their people are lazy or unworthy, or because the unions have let them down, or because of the failings of the welfare state. 
It's because we ripped the economy out from under them. For them, the past was better. And because we are linked to them by strong moral change, it was better for us too. So how did this happen? How did this transformation of our economy and society away from its egalitarian high tide succeed? Well, I believe it comes down to the power of an idea, a very literally revolutionary idea that has become the dominant political and economic idea of our times, the idea of economic reform, or one should say more accurately, the story of economic reform, because a story can change the world. Just ask the people who wrote the Bible. For the last 30 years, we have been told a mesmerising national story that has reworked Australian economic, social and political history into a one-sided narrative all about economic reform. It goes like this. We entered the 70s looking for economic trouble. Our government was too big, our taxes were too high, our workforce too unionised, our trade too regulated, our society too insular and too unsophisticated. In short, we were almost criminally complacent, stuck in the ideas of federation, more like a communist bloc economy than a market economy, thoroughly deserving of the reckoning that was about to come to us. Then, just as time was running out, and it's always running out in these sorts of stories, we were rescued by a class of heroic policymakers, men of courage and genius, who hardened their hearts against the cries of the losers, from change and began an era of reform that removed the economic protections, sold public assets, slashed tax rates, abolished wage fixing, discovered Asia, made us competitive again and set us up for 23 years of uninterrupted economic growth, at the end of which we think we have the right to tell the rest of the world how it's done. There was no other way, supposedly, than their way. And now, despite the fact that we were told it had all succeeded so well, they're telling us we need to turn around and do it again. More reform. More economic reform. But is this really an accurate portrayal of what happened? Because at the time, this pre-reform economic past didn't seem all that bad. In fact, to lots of Australians, it seemed very successful indeed, delivering many things whose passing we now frequently lament. Full employment, job security, high rates of home ownership, and a far less stressed lifestyle. You know, recently I stumbled upon a glossy international magazine from April 1973 that a friend rescued from the junk pile in her parents' garage. It's called Australia, the Awakening Giant, and it shows an Australia that is modern, liberal, full of life, full of potential, the envy of the world, with great manufacturing industries and a genius for modern invention. So here is Australia, its editorial says, a land quite like any other. It is a country well worth getting to know, not only because of its intrinsic fascination, but also because it deserves to be recognised as a nation with a tremendous future. Australia, April 1973, when things were meant to be so bad. That magazine is a time capsule containing a kernel of truth about our past that the economic reform boosters at the Australian and the Australian Financial Review haven't yet been able to destroy. Like that piece of coral embedded in glass in Winston Smith, that Winston Smith finds in Mr Charrington's junk shop in George Orwell's novel 1984. The reform boosters have rewritten the past to suit their cause writing out all the success. Orwell, of course, could explain why this was necessary. He recognised that those seeking to overthrow the way we live always start by falsifying the past, because it's only by discrediting the good things about the past that they can make their alternative seem necessary, better, inevitable. This is the meaning of the famous party slogan that you, I'm sure you all know. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. By misrepresenting and discrediting the time before the heroic era of economic reform, by portraying it as complacent and corrupt and embarrassing and poor, our present narrators are clearing away the positive human memories that might restrain their attempts to create a future that is safe for their relentless task of raising productivity. 
This economic reform narrative has another dimension that George Orwell may have recognised. It has recast our vocabulary, limiting our capacity to legitimately conceptualise an alternative future. Like Orwell's fictional language of newspeak, it has made black into white and channelled our thoughts into ever-narrowing directions. Having inherited the economic reformers' revolution, the managerial class has bureaucratised it into a series of slogans that thorough analysis renders meaningless and contradictory, but which have taken a firm grip on our thought processes. Take the term economic reform. Note the word reform, right? In its original political and economic meaning, reform had a far richer and in some ways opposite meaning, limiting the working day, making mines and factories safer, preventing child labour, legalising trade union membership and so on. Such reforms were motivated by moral concerns, whereas today's reforms aim to remove moral concerns from economic policy almost completely and let the free market be just that, free of moral constraint. Free to be a 7-Eleven economy with kids working for five bucks an hour on one side and billionaires living in $25 million mansions on the other. Take also the term creative destruction, which is as clear an example of Orwell's concept of double-think as you could get. It's often a nonsense. Sometimes the destruction of industries and businesses is not followed by the creation of new ones. Just ask the people of Doveton. And take economic reform's crowning concept, productivity. After 30 years of repetition, we have trained ourselves to regard this as the ultimate test of public policy. Nothing can be allowed to stand in its way. If it isn't everything, so our fellow guest here today, Paul Krugman, says, it's almost everything. And yet, as most economists will admit, it is difficult to define, and because it is a ratio of variables, it can lead to perverse conclusions. For example, if unemployment falls and economic output falls, productivity can go up as long as the fall in employment is greater than the fall in output. Think about that. We can be poorer and more productive. As far as the concept of productivity is concerned, the people of Doveton make Australia more productive now that they're on the dole than when they produce cars and trucks and food. Think about that. This sort of narrativising is relentless, utterly, utterly relentless. You can't open the Australian or the Financial Review on any day of the week without reading it. You know, I'm reminded when reading those papers of the joke people in offices tell about the bingo they play when the consultants from McKinsey and Bain and Boston turn up with their PowerPoint decks and their buzzwords. You know them, don't you? Cost-benefit analysis, bingo. New paradigm, it's a good one, bingo. Cost restructuring, bingo. Eliminate the silos, bingo. We'll take this, floating the dollar, bingo. Privatising the Commonwealth Bank, bingo. Abolition of trade restrictions, bingo. Rent seekers, Luddites, small government, bingo, bingo, bingo. For our economic policy reform boosters, life is just one great big game of bingo. In fact, I picked up the Australian last Saturday just to test if my bingo theory of economic reform holds true. And these were the headlines from Judith Sloan. Productivity is the key to wage rises, bingo. Paul Kelly. Nation's, nation's choice, sink or swim, bingo. Chris Kenny, Labor's left, no friend of the worker, you know, as if Chris Kenny is their friend. <laughs> bingo. The editorial, and this is a good one, Labor must listen to its elders, bingo, right? I think that editorial title, Labor must listen to its elders, quite unwittingly reveals something. This supposedly new era of economic reform that last week's Economic Reform Summit, hosted by the AFR and the Australian, tried to sell, isn't about the future at all. It's about the past, the early days of the revolution, the time when things started to go wrong. Since my book was published, the Australian has used its bingo-laden editorials to accuse me of nostalgia. But ask yourself, who are the real nostalgists? peddling a fake, misrepresented past. 
Who is trying to recreate the past of the 1980s and 1990s, if not the economic reform boosters themselves? The world has moved on. Today's 18-year-olds were born in 1997 and were just two years old when the GST was created and the reform era supposedly ended. New ideas are needed. We're told by these same people with another bingo slogan that our democracy is in crisis, that reform is no longer possible, that governments that try to change things are bound to lose power and that this is so because our leaders won't stand up to the populist tide with a promise to relive the 80s and 90s. I dispute this strongly. If change nowadays is hard, it isn't because our people are averse to any form of change. Hell, we've changed more than anyone in this country in the last 30 years. It's because they don't want the sort of change the economic reform boosters are pressing upon us against our will. The majority of the Australian people have never fully bought into the exaggerated Hawke Keating Howard Costello hero narrative and they never ever will. After 30 years of economic reform, they have had enough because they know that the drive for more economic reform and greater productivity inevitably means a harder life for them. Paul Kelly's so-called failure of Australian democracy to reform is in fact the triumph of Australian democracy, people power. So Judith, Paul, Chris, Stutch, don't you get it? The people don't want what you're selling, full stop. It's called democracy, that's what it's called. So what then is the way forward for us? There will always be economic change, we know that, and economic and economic reform, we can't stand still, we accept that. But here are two questions that embarrassing places like Doveton raise. Economic reform for what? Economic reform for whom? Yes, Australia and its economy had to change over the last 30 years and will have to change again. The world would have forced change upon us if we'd tried to resist. But contrary to what the economists have been telling us, we had a choice. There was and is an alternative. We could have changed differently. We didn't have to leave entire communities behind. We didn't have to let our manufacturing industries be destroyed and leave their people to rot. We could have stayed more equal. We could have done more and we didn't and because we didn't, we stand condemned. It happened because we got lost in data, because we got seduced by an inhuman set of theories that forgot that jobs and GDP and productivity and welfare reform and all other types of so-called economic reform are ultimately about human beings, because we forgot how to think morally and outsourced our moral decisions to economists whose only message was that we should harden our hearts because we narrowed our thought processes to what could be read on PowerPoint slides and Windows spreadsheets, because the Labor Party started thinking of itself as a policy unit of the Department of Treasury instead of as a social democratic party with the objective of creating a social democratic country. That's how it happened. Now, I'm prepared to acknowledge that I don't have a 10-point plan for creating a better country but I feel I need to leave you with something, some sort of answer. I think it comes down to changing the way we think about the interrelationships between economics and politics and society in a very fundamental way. You see, the way we do economics is letting us down. We've forgotten that economics started out as a moral science, not a mathematical one. Thomas Piketty says something like this in the early parts of his famous book. And shorn of its moral dimensions, economics loses its moral force and becomes yet another problem for our democracy. Authoritarian in its ambitions, theocratic in its logic, paralyzing in its psychology, heartless in its practice, wrong in its predictions, inhuman in its effect, and hated by ordinary people. To really give Australians, and in places like Doveton and elsewhere, greater prosperity, we have to give them back what we took away. An economy that was willing, when necessary, to shield the little people from the full winds of the market in the name of a better and fairer society, rather than exposing them to the full hurricane, as we are now doing. 
But more fundamentally still, if we're to give new life to places like Doveton, we must first change the way we think. We need to lift our minds beyond the narrowing philosophy of economic reform, with its innovating cult of managerialism and its monomaniacal pursuit of productivity. We need to think wider and deeper and see things in moral terms once again. And for this, we need inspiration. So where does that inspiration come from? The past, of course. To me, it comes from the Romantic movement. Those of you who read it will notice something slightly unusual in my book, or at least unusual for a Labor Party speechwriter. I quote the Romantic poets and writers. Wordsworth, Shelley, his friend Horace Smith, Mary Wollstonecraft. Why? You see, like us, the Romantic poets were a post-revolutionary generation. The French Revolution promised them the liberating freedom and equality of the Enlightenment. But they came to see very quickly that the bureaucratic class who had seized power in the name of Enlightenment had little time for human beings and human feelings. The likes of Voltaire, Rousseau, Diderot, Tom Paine and others had been replaced by a class of ruthless, bloodthirsty Jacobins to whom human values meant nothing. Vibrant revolutionaries became dull, inhuman bureaucrats. In Russia, they became the nomenclatura. The people became an abstraction, a theoretical concept, an agglomeration of popular will. The idea of enlightenment as being all about human happiness was soon lost. And in response, the romantics hearkened back to the past. Their pastoral verse and paintings sought out the reverence of nature, beauty and happiness. And human, in, and human sociability. Beauty is truth, they said, and truth is beauty. They searched their own lives for the rem remnants of the Enlightenment, which they realised lay not in the realm of abstract reason, but in the realm of the imagination, which Mary Wollstonecraft memorably summed up as the true fire stolen from heaven that leads to the sociability of mankind. Today, the big promises made to us by the economic reformers have been crushed. The philosophers of economic freedom have been replaced by dull managerialists. And instead of obtaining new freedoms, we've been turned into data and KPIs and been given productivity increases and debt, and in places like Doveton, 21% intergenerational unemployment. Just as they did for the Romantics after the French Revolution, the answers for us the generation that lives on after the neoliberal revolution lie in the past, in the way our parents' and grandparents' generation organised our society. We have, in effect, to become the new romantics. And that once great political party that should be leading the fight back, the Labor Party, has to rediscover its romantic convictions too. To find that inspiration again, we need to reach back and try and recapture the imagination that once led us to try to create a country ruled by the idea of decency, which gave people in places like Doveton things almost impossible to conceive of today, affluence, success, happiness, even a job. We need ultimately to begin our economic thinking from a new place from the idea that our economy should include everyone in the creation and enjoyment of our wealth, not just some people. Ladies and gentlemen, if the past was better than the present, the starting point for creating a better future lies in your memories and in your romantic instincts. Only they can defeat the dull minds who now try and tell us how to live our lives. Thank you. It's really not hard to uh, tell why Labor people get you to write their speeches. I wish <laughs> they get you to write some of their policies as well. <laughs> they used um, to. <laughs> <laughs> um, so now we get to the part of the afternoon where it's time for shorter speeches disguised as questions. No, actually, we're, we're, we're going we're to do this a little bit differently. I'm going to kick us off uh, with a, a, a first question to get us into the discussion, um, and, and we'll go from there. Um, look, 
I'm kind of interested in hearing you delve a little bit more into mm. this idea of uh, rescuing economics as a moral philosophy, yeah. as a moral science. And I'm curious because it's very easy for people who have a, let's broadly call mm. it, a progressive view of the world when we're operating in a context which valorises, um, you know, a very narrow set of, you know, often unrepresentative numbers to just spout those numbers back at people in order to win arguments within the frame that is allowed for us to have debate. Yeah. So mm -hmm. where do you think it is useful to engage um, with economics as it is? Um, and where do you think that's counterproductive? When, when you talk about, um, you know, like levels of unemployment, um, mm. you know, that, that's a really economic question. How do we engage with it differently? How do we engage mm. with it with poetry? Well, I want um, our economists to engage with society more by getting off their bums and getting out and having a look at what's going on. You know, um, I worked as a policy advisor for a long time in the Labor Party, and, you know, the smartest people in the Labor Party are often the senior advisors and the, the, the economists, but they spend all of their time in the bowels of Parliament House chained to their computers looking at average statistics on the screen. They They never, ever get out and look at the consequences for ordinary people of the policies that they put forward. Because all they see is the averages. You know, our average prosperity has increased in the last, you know, three decades. But if you get in your car and drive down the freeway 35 kilometres and go and have a look at the town where I grew up, you know that it hasn't worked for everybody. And if we're going to be a society that values everybody, we have to try and figure out economic policies that work for everyone, or as close to everyone as we can. Now, part of the problem is that, I think over time, economics has become, been mathematised you know, um, Thomas Piketty says this in his book at the start, which is ironic because here's a book based on statistics, the, the looking at century of statistics to try and figure out um, how inequality has, has widened, um, yet he's upset with his own profession because they sound like mathematicians. And he, a lot of his book is actually, he uses literature, he looks at the novels of... Um, of, uh, you know, Gaskell and, um, and Zach and Austin and all these others to, um, to try and figure out how, how the economy worked back in the days before there were statistics. You know, we can do this again. We can watch great drama about the past, watch old television series, listen to the records of Bruce Springsteen, which are all about the hopes and dreams of blue-collar America in the 70s and 80s. Um, these things can tell us what's going on we don't just need statistics. Um, I, I really think if, if we're going to create a better society, our economy, that the starting point is for our economists to just go and have a look around at the world they've created and be moved by what they see. And I think they'll start changing their policies. So I want us to do something a little bit different right now. Um, we tried this this morning. It was really fun. Um, what I want before we dive into Q&A is to ask everybody in the audience to turn to the person next to them, um, tell them your question, workshop it a little bit. If you hear a really great one, encourage people to get up and take a microphone. So we've got a microphone at the top there and we've got one at the bottom. Um, so I'm going to give all of you guys one minute. Talk amongst yourselves. Talk about what the first question is that you, you think you might ask. Talk? <laughs> Smart idea. All right, guys. And 
that is time. I know that you guys could keep on talking forever. It's, oh my God, it is so clear. This is, the, 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 the conversations that are going to happen after this event is over are just going to be fantastic, I can tell. It's a shame we have to file out, but don't worry. Dennis will be, he'll be signing books. He'll be signing books when we're done here. Um, and I'm sure that there will be time for us to all talk to each other um, once he gets into that. Sorry, time guys, time guys. I know you've got so much to say. It's fantastic. I wish we had time for every single person to stand up here. I'm going to call time. So now I want everybody to race to microphones one and two. I particularly want to encourage any women in the audience who are wondering whether or not your question is worth asking. It is. Jump up there. Um, uh, yeah, let's, let's, let's get the first question. Woman in the front there. Yep. <clears throat> Hello, my name's Barbara. Uh, thank you very much. Excellent talk. Thank Enjoyed you. it very much. Um, I'm a registered paediatric nurse. I have been for 50 years. I started off on five pounds a week and I still only make $30 an hour, which is mm. not very much mm. after 50 years' experience. Now, I grew up in the country, uh, northwest New South Wales, and it was a very free and easy um, upbringing. We, you know, parents weren't worried about us, and we'd off, off we'd go. Now, the choices were you, you were a nurse, you were a teacher, you were oh. a receptionist, and for the boys it was usually teacher, you know, something similar. If, if you were lucky enough to go to university, you could do law, something similar, or medicine. Mm. I was told I, that, that girls don't do medicine, that, that, that they do nursing. <laughs> My question is... Um, do you think today there are too many choices for young people and that uh, it's, well, it's difficult. A lot, a lot of young people here, I know, mm. but a lot of people mm. my age as well. But I think their opportunities are very good, um, but are there too many choices and do they want too much too soon? No, I, I don't think there are too many choices for young people. I think it's great that people have more choices now. The problem is there are too many costs associated with, with gaining those choices. You think, you know, we used to say, back when I worked for Kim Beasley that, um, as education advisor, um, the threat of the $100,000 degree was the big bogeyman we had. Well, that's what a degree costs now. Um, people go through all these years of university, they come out saddled with massive amounts of debt, um, the young people's lives are lived often in, in stress, um, thinking that they'll never be able to buy the sort of home that they want. Um, the economic reform was meant to make us happier. It was meant to increase our freedoms. I don't think it has really done that. Um, we could have done it differently. We could have kept university free or very cheap and freed people of those concerns so that they could study what they want and enjoy better lives, you know, so... Thanks, Dennis. Um, I've been in the fashion industry for 35 years in Australia. Still in it. Silly me. Um, <laughs> question I have is, yeah. is it economic reform that 18-year-olds um, today don't aspire to be on sewing machines and that most of the labels in this room um, would not have been purchased from an Australian supplier? Well, I think getting rid of tariffs and those sorts of things has helped wipe out the local industry. In the, in the book, I tell this story of how, um, my, of talking to my aunt, when she was a, she was a Baltic um, refugee from um, Europe uh, after, the, after the Second World War, her mother used to work in a clothing factory in Bendigo and she worked in the Woolworths in, in Dandenong and she used to sell the very clothes that her mother made. My aunt used to own a shop um, in one of the, in the slides you saw there, you know, those rolled old shops that are now $2 shops. She used to own a shop like that which sold the clothes that were made by women in factories in the north of Melbourne. We had a society then which, which um, didn't give us clothes that were as cheap as they are now, but they gave people jobs. Um, I think there's, there's possibly a, a halfway house between those two things. Do we really have to get rid of our manufacturing all the time? Think of what happened to the car industry. You know, we were panicked into closing the car industry. The dollar was 106 against the, the American um, a year or so ago when all those decisions were made. Slipped below 70 the other day. Um, and guys who worked, all the old engineers who worked in the car industry who I interviewed writing my book, told me that 
their economics told them that they could break even when the dollar was at 90, right? So I think what's happened is in the name of economic reform, we've been panicked into closing the sorts of industries that helped us create a better society where everyone was engaged. When you were to think about manufacturing for just a moment, um, manufacturing is different to the services. I'm not against the service industries, but think about it. Manufacturing brings lots of working class people together under one big roof. They organise, they gain confidence, they set up clubs. In the factory, when I talked to some of the old workers from the factories, they told me that they had tennis clubs, football clubs, cricket clubs, um, fishing clubs, 10-pin bowling clubs with an award night where everybody wins a, a trophy, um, bingo nights that my mother used to go to, all of these things. That, this was a little world and a community that manufacturing supported in, it, and which I think the service sector doesn't tend to support now. Now, I know things have to change. The world would have forced change upon us, as I said. But did we really have to ruin all that? Did we really have to be rushed into closing everything, um, get panicked into it? Couldn't we have waited? Couldn't we have thought it through? Couldn't we have thought about new industries we wanted to create, ways we could make clothing, clothes made in Australia? Sorry, um, I'm just going to limit it to one know? question per person. <laughs> Couldn't consumer. we have done that? Does the consumer have a say in that? Of course, of course. But, you know, the, the consumer's choices are in some ways created by economic policies, by what happens to tariffs, what happens to support for industries. Uh, you know, we got rid of support for the car industry and now it's two years from now, it's all going to be gone. And all those... And unemployment in Elizabeth's going to... Which is at 32.6% now, and the factories haven't even shut. And when the factories shut, they're going to be 50%. I really like that we could have changed differently point that you made mm. in your speech and just there. I think that's a, a good to think about what a different trajectory Germany, of change Germany's would modern, like. Mm. Germany's a modern country with a manufacturing industry, but instead of providing tax breaks for people to bid up the price of property, you know, to the, pl to, to the point where you can't even buy a house in Sydney anymore unless you're a millionaire, instead of doing that, they invest in skills and they've got a modern manufacturing economy in which, which is a lot more equal than ours. Gentleman up the back, at the top. G'day, Dennis. Uh, just wondering, is there or do you see another Renaissance man or woman on the horizon or are we doomed to automatons forever? <laughs> um, gee, let me think. You know, a couple of, the person who launched my book in Melbourne was Lindsay Tanner. Remember him? You know, Lindsay was going to be the was the hope of the left in some ways. I always used to think years ago, no matter how many sort of dull robots we have in the Labor Party caucus, there are people like Lindsay. Lindsay's great passion, like mine, is George Orwell, and we sort of, you know, compare who's got the better first edition, you know, of 1984. Um, there are people like that in the Labor Party, but under, but at present they just simply can't get pre-selected because the machine is controlled by the by the managerialists. You know, um, and that's Lindsay what all those... himself, of course, was minister for deregulation. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, but 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 you know, it, that aside, there are some really great young people. I think the problem that the Labor Party has at the moment isn't isn't a problem of every generation. The older people in the Labor Party are the ones with passion, and so are the young people. It's the generation that just blew it. The generation now in its early fifties that blew it for the Labor Party. They were the destructive generation who engaged in all the, the factionalism and all that, and then, and then you know, brought it to life on stage in front of our eyes in that crazy, spectacular government that they had. They're going, and you'll think you'll see some of the younger people in their 40s now, perhaps one day Miriam, um, will get pre-selected for Parliament and make things better. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Gentlemen down the front. Um, thank you both. You're both very well spoken and I agree a lot with what you said. Um, this is a question for Dennis. Yep. Um, I was wondering, you mentioned uh, uh, economics as a moral science mm. and I was wondering how you thought that different moral systems that people might think of, for example, like freedom or being a utilitarian or equality as a value, how they can be reconciled because obviously what you're speaking about is you're speaking about going back to these moral roots. Mm. But there are so many, like democracy, there are so many different um, roots of these. Yeah. Well, for me, um, there's a way that all of the, these sort of freedoms come together. The liberal, you know, the, the ideas of liberal democratic freedoms, the idea of equality come together, and it's called social democracy. 
And that's what the Labor Party used to believe in. You know, the idea that we could, we could have a free capitalist economy, but with enough government intervention to ensure that ordinary people were well looked after and had opportunities. And I think that's what the Labor Party, I don't, I don't mean this to be a lecture about the Labor Party or to the Labor Party, but for me, as that's the organisation that has to do what I'm saying, right? We all know that. And um, they, they've got to start going back and stop just thinking about the spreadsheets. Stop thinking about the PowerPoint presentations. Stop thinking about the day-to-day -day politics. Put a bit of effort into thinking what their philosophy is, what they stand for, and what they want to do when they get into government. And they haven't been doing that in recent times. I take it you didn't write uh, Julia Gillard's speech on how Labor is not the party of social democracy then? No, in fact, I criticised her in the press and got in trouble for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, down front. Thanks very much for your presentation. I've just got mm. one question. Yep. With the type of economy that you, you promote, could Australia would have survived in the world in terms of you know, globalisation? That's my question. Sure. Um, you know, a lot of different countries responded to globalisation in different ways. The Scandinavian countries and Germany didn't do so by doing what we've done, which is getting rid of, of our manufacturing sector, um, going down the low-wage path. Um, you know, there are choices. I mean, you know, I could take a vote here and I think I know how it would turn out. Who wants us to be more like Sweden and who wants us to be more like America? You know, who wants, who wants a, an equal, a more equal society where admittedly we pay more taxes but have lower unemployment um, and a better, commu stronger community or to be like America where you have rich people on one side and people on the minimum wage on the other? You know, when, in writing for the book, one of, one of the great moments in researching this book was when I went back to the old factory of, of um, Heinz where I used to work and some of the pictures you saw were of the actual buildings in which I worked um, alongside my sister and my mother and, um, and, her, and her later partner. And I went to a reunion of, those, of the factory workers. Um, 1,200 people um, normally worked in the Heinz factory and 15 years after it shut, there were 450 people at a reunion. And I was one of them. And I got talking to them. And some of those people told me that when they worked at Heinz, they lived in this nice little community. They had a great canteen where they had their dinner um, every day. Like I said, all of those clubs, um, they, had, they were well paid because they were unionised. Um, they had lots of overtime, canning, you know, tomatoes and things like this as seasonal work, loads of overtime. They did really well. They could have holidays and renovate the house, buy a car with the money they earned. But that's all gone now. And they told me that they're working in warehousing on the minimum wage, you know, $16.86 an hour. And, and there's no overtime. And when they, you know, with double pay, and when they want to get some money to try and keep their head above water or just get ahead a little, they have to take a second job at $16.86 an hour. And, you know, the lady earlier was saying she's now, as a nurse, only paid $30 an hour, which is scandalous. Imagine trying to live off, you know, $16.86 an hour. That's the road to an American economy. And we saw it on Four Corners the other night with those poor young Indian guys getting exploited by the crooks who run 7-Eleven. This is happening all the time. It's the second Four Corners show that's been on recently. On the way here, my taxi driver was telling me how since Uber's come along, his income has been slashed. Um, we're heading that way. We're heading towards um, a two-class society. Australia wasn't like that. And we have to turn it around and get back to where it used to be. Um, woman down the front, and um, we're starting to run short on time, so I'm going to emphasise short questions and possibly short answers as well at this point. Yeah, I, I talk fast. Um, I was interested to hear you mention Germany. Um, I'm a little perplexed by the dichotomy that you're positing um, between social democracy and prosperity on the one hand and um, productivity on the other, because if we take Germany, which I think arguably yeah. is the economically most successful social democracy, they are successful economically because they are so incredibly productive in their manufacturing. And so the kind of solution which you seem to be positing, which is this idea of sort of sheltered workshops and tariffs, that doesn't work in a globalised economy. And there is another solution. It seems to me that productivity is the elephant in the room, but you posit mm. that as contradictory to social democracy, which is something on which I have personally no argument with you. Yeah. 
Um, so I'd love to hear you expand on that a little bit more because they don't seem to be contradictory at all, especially not any examples you cite as a model yeah. for us. I'm not, I'm not against making us more productive. You know, we all, efficiency has its, you know, has its place in the economy, an important place in the economy. What I'm saying is that our economists now only think about one thing. They only think about productivity. They used to think about unemployment, you know, about increasing GDP, about, you know, whether our roads, our bridges were falling down, whether our roads in good state of repair, the state of our schools, how well funded our social security system was, trade, trade balances, all these things. And now, whenever you hear an economist talk, they say, we have to do this because it'll increase productivity. When the NDIS, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, was being proposed a couple of years ago, um, the Productivity Commission came out and said, we have to do it because it'll increase GDP by 0.1% by the year 2050 or something. Nobody proposes the NDIS. Nobody wants the NDIS because it's going to increase GDP by 0.1% and raise productivity. They want it because they see pictures of mothers with severely disabled children who are battling against the odds and they want to do something. They, we're doing that because because when that idea came forward, it brought out a compassion within us, not mathematics. So that's what I'm saying. Efficiency is good, but let's not narrow every argument we have down to just productivity, because there are other important things in economics that we have to talk about. Probably also depends on which lens you look through productivity at as well. I mean, there's resource productivity. Australia's resource productivity is incredibly low, and I think it'd be great if we got better at having, um, you know, more economic value coming out of less use of resources, and that yeah. would be a kind of productivity gain that would yeah, probably exactly. benefit us all. Yeah. I, um, uh, I would like everybody in the audience to admire Dennis's tie. Um, this meticulously knitted tie was um, made by his wife, who... I <laughs> <laughs> believe took quite a lot of time uh, doing her bit to undermine Australia's productivity in the process. It's the Australian um, fashion industry in work, sheltered workshops in my home. <laughs> <laughs> but it did remind me of the um, Productivity uh, Commission. I think it was a Productivity Commission report. It was, it was, it was, it was a report on productivity which um, argued that Australia's productivity was being dragged down by bespoke bakeries and cafes. So, so you know, Basically, you know, you, there's this whole, you know, craft breweries, I think, were really yep. singled out. Yep. Basically, the hipsters are to blame. Um, <laughs> it, is, it is interesting, these different, different lenses you can look at productivity through. Um, I think we've got another question there. Yeah, oh, yeah. Sorry, oh. I, I, I'm I'm being blatantly feminist and just giving a little bit of a preference to women so that we get a, a, an equal gender quota of questions asked. So I'll just go here, and if we've got time, we'll we'll go up to you up the top. Sorry about that. I'll be quick I so you get a very chance. Token, yep. but okay. <laughs> um, um, half of my questions will be answered, so I might sort of twist it a little bit. And so yep. I was, it was a lot of it was around globalisation, but in the same vein. Is there a sort of time in which we need to get this right? Um, you know, if, if once we've gone down the sort of um, so-called free trade agreements with China and various other um, countries around the world, is, are we going to get to a point where we won't really have enough control over our own economics in a way that, um, that we can make a difference in how we do things here? I think we'll always have a choice. We'll always be able to make a difference. It'll just take leadership. That's all. It'll just take people in power who's prepared to come out and say, um, we're not going to go down that road anymore. We're going to do something differently. And it could be. And I think the CHAFTA thing, though, the Chinese free trade agreement, could be a, a telling moment. You know, um, do we want jobs here or don't we? I mean, uh, look, it may create some jobs, but allowing people to bring in foreign workers to work on their, their investments here seems to me to defeat the whole idea of allowing foreign investment. Um, if it's not giving jobs to our people, why, why are we doing it? I, I just don't get it. So. Looks like we've got room for you up the top. On. Uh, has our uh, level of migration in the last 30 years contributed to the change that you've been talking about? Look, I, um, the thing about... The thing about Doveton now is Doveton's always been a place of migration. My parents are from Belfast and they came here in 1963. In fact, I was conceived on the boat in the Suez Canal <laughs> on one romantic moonlit night. All of, um, everyone in Doveton, and all of my neighbours were Scottish, English, 
um, Greek, Italian, whatever. They've now been replaced in Doveton by other migrants um, from Afghanistan and, you know, the Middle East. Um, these sorts of, you know, they, these sorts of more recent migrants and, you know, we've let them down. They're not the problem. You know, there, there were people... When the English and Irish and, and Scottish lived in Doveton, um, there were jobs. Now there's no jobs for these migrants. The problem isn't the migrants, the problem is the economies not giving them jobs. Um, so let's not blame migrants for our problem. Now, unfortunately, we are now out of time. I'm so sorry we couldn't get to everyone who had questions. <laughs> I know that the extra questions would have been so good. But look, Dennis will be signing books right now outside, so I hope you guys can all come down for a chat. Thank you so much. Thank you.